Yeah, but music has always been probably one of, I can't think of a TV show that has music at its core like Twin Peaks did. They had their uh, classic original soundtrack album, which is arguably the high point of TV soundtracks. And I've followed that up with Fire Walk With Me, which uh, was for the standalone film. The latest TV series that's just finished has got three separate soundtrack albums. So, so far they've released the incidental music, uh, which is the uh, sort of non-melodic, sort of uh, atmospheric stuff. And today I see they release the, um, basically there's a plot device in it where every episode, more or less, they would have the end credits um, and last sort of scenes would take place in the Roadhouse or Bang Bang Bar as it was jointly called. And they have a, a wide variety of musicians on hand to sort of like play out the last scene and then bleed into the credits. And so other times they play in the middle of an episode and so on. And they've released an album which is all of those acts. Uh, Chromatics appear a couple of times, Nine Inch Nails, Eddie Vedder goes solo, performing a very rare song uh, acoustically. And Julie Cruz, the original Chanteuse from the, the original series turned up. Rebecca Del Rio and Moby did a, a, a very interesting number on there as they were, well, she, well, he made his name from Laura Palmer's theme, which he repurposed as Go, his first ever hit record. And Rebecca Del Rio was uh, inarguably David Lynch's finest three minutes which was uh, in Mulholland Drive when she uh, sang Crying the Roy Orbison song reducing uh, Naomi Watson her girlfriend to tears and then she collapses on stage revealing it all to be miming and it's just kind of like a shocking moment that it works on so many different levels so I'm going to start with a little bit of Audrey's dance <laughs> And the original music for the series was almost always put together by a composer in his 80s now, Angelo Badalamenti. And also David Lynch himself, who was responsible for an, not only an awful lot of the music, but uh, a lot of the lyrics. And also for choosing a lot of the musicians that would be involved. He was um, pretty much chose bands that he wanted. I noticed Johnny Jewell from Chromatics they're one of the only bands who have played twice during the course of the series. He actually played three times because he was back up to Julie Cruz and he reckons he composed about five and a half hours of original music to be used in the show and a lot of it was. And there is one more soundtrack album to come which I think will be all of that sort of Angelo Badalamenti produced original score music. That was Audrey's Dance from the 1990 Twin Peaks soundtrack album. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the remaining two episodes of Twin Peaks, stop listening, and, and as long as you intend to watch them ever. Uh, I just finished the finale, and obviously with something like this, I mean, it's basically putting David Lynch in charge of, of the final episode of Breaking Bad. Um, what to make of the final two? Every episode was an hour long, and they gave us a, a two-hour kiss-off finale. Um, episodes 15 and 16 were jaw-dropping and fist-pumpingly amazing and really, really good. And um, the two-hour finale is divided, as of course it would. Um, for, like I said, spoiler alert, I'm going to be referring to stuff that's actually happened in these uh, episodes, uh, as well as the whole show overall. Um, the finale itself, 
I've got to say, like, for me, the opening half an hour of the episode 17 was perhaps the biggest misstep. I, I don't think they've put a foot wrong in the preceding 16 hours. It's an 18-hour show. Uh, and he wants it to be viewed as a film rather than episodic, even though um, certain episodes did stand out markedly as being very different to the rest. And I thought they basically set it all up for the major story arc, which was Agent Cooper returning to Twin Peaks and doing battle with Evil Cooper, who was his doppelganger. And Evil Cooper had existed in the previous 16 hours of TV, whereas Good Cooper, the Agent Cooper from the original, both played by Carl McLaughlin, um, he had been trapped inside this um, body of a man that looks exactly like him, and we found that the doppelganger thing was really big. Uh, a lot of, um, like, basically there was the good guys came from the White Lodge in this sort of metaphysical other realm, and the baddies who were the serial killers and the rapists and the murderers, um, they all came from the Black Lodge, and uh, Agent Cooper had spent the last sort of 25 years trapped in this Black Lodge while the evil version of him ran amok on down on Earth. And he finally escaped, but he was in a catatonic state for the entire series. He got, he's been like 10 hours as this du- called, creature called Dougie, who's married to Naomi Watts and whose only verbal communication would be to repeat the odd words said to him. And he was a divisive character, but everyone loved him in the end because he was just... He managed to go through life with this limited verbiage and actually become incredibly successful. Even his wife loved him even more than he, he was. I thought it was a good sort of commentary on what would a perfect marriage be. You know, do you have someone that's um, really in the moment with you and has got a good um, communication skills with you but is an absolute ratbag and useless and incompetent? Or do you have this guy that bumbles through with gold dripping out of his pockets through no fault of his own and can barely speak, but nonetheless is loved by everyone, whereas this predecessor who could talk wasn't? Um, Anyway, that whole whole sort of first hour, which was kind of the denouement of the whole series, was possibly the weakest. And I don't know how I'm going to feel about that particular bit, um, because those moments of uh, Agent Cooper reappearing, um, which was triumphant at the very end of episode 16 last week, uh, that itself is so short-lived. Agent Cooper, the happy sort of forthright Agent Cooper, who was the, the you know the white knight and white uh, white knight sort of character, he disappears really, really quickly. And he has virtually no time in Twin Peaks at all. We've been waiting all of these hours for him to interact with the town and the people of Twin Peaks. And we got barely minutes. And I thought the way that um, Evil Coop was dispatched was a little bit too easy and a bit too trite. And I didn't really like the character with the glove. But over the course of the two hours, we also got a lot more that I didn't expect to be coming. Such as, I think for the first time in the TV series which started in 1990, we actually had Laura Palmer alive on screen. And it was quite shocking. She was an adult. And what the ramifications of all of this are, well, I've been reading a lot online today, and there are so many theories about all of the machinations. It has, like the last scene, I think is a classic because it is so unknowable. What happens is just so shockingly weird um, that you just sort of what not only what does this mean but it's like what has everyone done it's it's almost like reality has completely turned on its head 
And there's this very, very strange doorstep encounter as well, which is, well, I thought it was really, really good. And there was a lot I loved about the final two episodes. Just not that sort of the whole evil coop thing. It was kind of set up to be the big denouement. And they sort of got it out of the way really, really quickly. And in, and in, in a, a little bit of a silly manner, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's just projecting. Because if there's one thing I've learned about this series is that there has never been anything like it on TV. Not even the original series. And a lot of what the payback from watching it was wasn't a traditional payback. So maybe we were always stupid to expect more of a payback along those lines. A lot of people were complaining that a lot of the storylines went unanswered. But if you do look at it, they they did answer a lot of storylines and they just might have done so in ways that weren't... Say, for instance, one of the characters, Shelley, she was had an abusive domestic violence relationship in the original. Very early doors for that kind of thing to be covered on TV. And she's shown as an adult and someone that has ended up marrying Bobby... Uh, who was the boyfriend of Laura Palmer in the original series, who was an absolute scumbag. And he's turned into this really, really honourable, upstanding police officer in it. But, again, they've broken up, and she is still really into bad boys, and he's devastated, and they've had this daughter that's lived through the same experience that she had. But the story never went anywhere, and I wonder if that's the point with a lot of the storylines in this series, which is they established things they established that Shelley the mother was still repeating her mistakes of the past and that those mistakes had leached into her daughter's life and and maybe that's it maybe there isn't a story it's just showing you uh, there were there were lots of mirrors and cyclical things and repeats so the relationships between those characters like Shelley's daughter and her husband Shelley and her new boyfriend Shelley and Bobby in the past and also her co-worker Nadine, who she always used to be the shoulders to cry on, showed that the behaviours of people are often cyclical and often repeat themselves, and there's maybe not much running away from the past. The final two hours were bleak, apart from the sort of triumphant dispatching of Evil Cooper, uh, which was nowhere near as triumphant as a lot of the other moments in the series. I thought that um, it was very, very dark and very nihilistic and actually quite bleak, and there were lots and lots of artistic triumphs throughout mirrors where people would be acting in a very similar way to another scene and you can sort of transfer what was going on. But even despite that small misstep, which is probably about you know 15 minutes of television out of 18 hours, I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, I'm going to score it a 10 out of 10. And the reason is, is I don't score things... I wouldn't score something a 10 and then take away points because I think it's made a mistake. So like I gave um, Kong a zero earlier in the year, it wasn't because it was incompetently made like The Mummy or like uh, King Arthur, which were just incompetent from start to finish. It, was, it aimed at the ground. It aimed at zero. It didn't bring anything. Whereas, I don't know, to be really pretentious, in this was compared to the rest of the TV, like, say, peak period Picasso or late period Van Gogh, when everyone else was painting like a photograph and they bring this out. It was a completely new experience. It was so far left field from the original show. It took no prisoners at all, and it offered some really challenging and artistic television way beyond anything I've seen, certainly at this level. Uh, there's a famous episode eight where 40, there's a 40-minute 40 montage 
of the first nuclear bomb going off and it creating evil in the world that is one of the most striking things I've ever... Well, it is the most striking thing I've ever seen on TV. There's no doubt in my mind that, that I've got more intellectual stimulation about this TV show than any other, or that I've got more enjoyment out of it than any since Breaking Bad. Um, this, it's to judge it against something like Breaking Bad, which didn't, put a, didn't really have a misstep. Even though the first series was not as great as the subsequent ones, it didn't have a, a narrative misstep, and it landed the ending... I don't know if it landed the ending, but then the hour and a half that followed was um, almost like a new universe opening up. And it did leave you with more thoughts about what the hell, not only what's just happened, but what does it mean? What do these ramifications mean? And it, it continually provokes you to think in a wider way about what you've just seen. I love the artistry, the way scenes were set up and shot. There was a amazing use of uh, tension by repetition of noises of very long scenes i think there was a five minute scene of someone sweeping the floor and every single aspect of it was put together like a you know a, a, um one of those eggs <laughs> i can't even remember what they're called fabergé egg <laughs> Um, and it was just so intricately laid like every single placement of every single object every single sort of sentence was so artistically delivered um, so I am going to watch the final again and see if um, see if it makes gives me the conclusions that I need but I don't think it was after conclusions I think um, he, he famously said that Laura Palmer was a MacGuffin in the original which is a Hitchcock term for um, something that's just there to for the story and that's just so you can spend time with the characters their environment and so on and get to know them and on that level it was flawless it was amazing and it was also the most artistically challenging major tv show that has ever been made no one's even come close to attempting something that was so artistically challenging so take no prisoners um there was it like each episode was its own holistic universe and some were really really challenging others like 15 and 16 had some amazing moments like the reappearance of agent cooper and Nadine getting together with her long-suffering wannabe lover for all the last 30 years to Otis Redding's I've Been Loving You Too Long was one of the most, they're two of the most sort of jump out of your seat cheer moments, very, very rewarding. And then there was some really, really dark, twisted stuff. And it was very thought-provoking, beautiful to look at, often visually it was dazzling. And there was some really sort of challenging visuals as well. The music across the board was stunning. I can't see, um, I, I, I mean, it's going to be an awards hoover because the music was great, like the incidental music, the music they used from bands, and also the uh, composed music was stunning. The cinematography was often outlandish and weird and brilliant and unique, and the acting was across the board fantastic. It was an odd person that stuck out, but Carl McLaughlin played about four different characters. And we only got to see him as Good Coop from the original series for about half an hour. And that was one of the weirdest elements. Like the Good Coop from the original series appears and he seems to fade from our view even while you're watching and I still haven't quite worked that out. He, he seemed to fade into a different person as you were watching the final moments or the final hour. And what that all means, I'm not even sure. Um, so I think it's uh, probably the high point of David Lynch's career it's an amazing achievement, something that we never expected. 
and something completely new as well. So I'm giving it 10 out of 10 because it is unique and because it was such an artistic triumph. And it's going to get so many nominations from every technical category. I would imagine Episode 8 will win awards on its own just because it's so artistically challenging. And there will be lots and lots of actors. Incidentally, it was quite weird because Carl McLaughlin, who's definitely going to get a lot of lead actor nominations... He spends. Um, he gets together with the character Diane, who was a tape deck on the first two series, and is played in this one by. Uh, I've lost her name. I'm trying to remember Laura Dern. And the interesting thing, and there's so many interesting things looking back over David Lynch's career. Not only were Carl McLaughlin and Laura Dern lovers on the movie Blue Velvet, which he, which not only preceded Twin Peaks, but seemed to inform Twin Peaks. Now it was small picket town, you know, white picket fence America with a seedy underbelly. That was basically Twin Peaks, the prequel for me. Um, they were actually lovers in real life even before that as well. And now they're together in this, <laughs> in this very, very bizarre relationship. I wonder what the actors make of it all. So it's the most amazing 18 hours of TV you can watch, I think. It's not as literally rewarding as something like Breaking Bad. Maybe Breaking Bad by Picasso, by by, by most extreme Picasso. Um, yeah, Twin Peaks. I'm giving a very, very rare 10 out of 10 because it's, 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 it's just an artistic achievement that's so new and so complete that it just deserves its own sort of pigeonhole in the world of television. Whether it will lead to, whether it will influence television, I don't know, but it's certainly different from it. Okay, that's Twin Peaks done for now. Sorry if I spoiled anything there. Man, that's such a weird end sequence. Really disturbing, and it wasn't like it was disturbing in, in any way that it should have been. It was just so unexpected and so left you with your mind reeling okay this is from that uh from firewalk with me which was the actual official prequel of twin peaks and it came out after the first two series as a very maligned movie uh, which got no acclaim at all and has now been subsequently sort of folded into the twin peaks universe and got a lot more sort of kudos from that excellent soundtrack album the pink room <laughs> 